you for uh, coming by today, investing in God's Word and God's people. And uh, Papa is going to start us today um, on uh, a little bit of, we're talking about tongues. This is the week we've all been waiting for. Oh, wow, that's exactly right. And Papa is going to help us to understand uh, where some of this really took off, um, I guess more recently, recently talking about whatever, 100 years ago. And um, But before that, Mark, would you pray um, for God's wisdom and, and uh, grace as we um, study this, I think, very interesting um, topic? Absolutely. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to study your Word. Uh, it really is a privilege to study on any topic. Whatever topic happens to be this week is always a privilege and joy to see what your Word says. And uh, as we talk about the gift of tongues, which certainly <clears throat> is a controversial gift uh, in the last century or so of the church. Uh, God, I pray that you would give us uh, grace and truth as we speak about these things, that you would help us to have discernment, uh, that you would help us to see the purpose of this gift in the New Testament and how we are to think about uh, that gift today. Uh, please give us insight from your word, wisdom, and I pray you would be honored and glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Papa, we'd call you our resident historian. <laughs> Could you help us there? Uh, how, did, how did this kind of um, really take, take some root? The manifestations of the, of the, of the gifts were pretty much um, silent for most of church history. There's been, there were some isolated incidents, but most of the uh, theologians that, that we follow, um, uh, from Augustine even forward, say it, that, the, that the gifts were, had ceased. Uh, however, in the early part of the 20th century, uh, uh, 1906 specifically, there was uh, an outbreak, and actually in, in 1901, there was an outbreak in, in uh, Kansas by a Methodist pastor in uh, 1901, and then the Azusa Street Revival, which some of you probably have heard of in Los Angeles, took place in 1906. Um, the the Azusa Street revival was led by a guy named Seymour, a black holiness pastor, and he was a student of this guy in Kansas City. So there's always somebody's always a student of somebody else and and leading this type thing. But this this movement caught hold, spread throughout the United States, and by the mid uh, uh, part of the 20th century, the holiness movement or the speaking in tongues movement. Um, uh, our charismatic movement uh, ventured into other mainline denominations, Catholic, Episcopal, others experienced this type thing. And basically, the Pentecostal movement has as its roots uh, the holiness movement, which emphasized the second blessing or second work of grace called entire sanctification. Actually, John Wesley taught this theology. Uh, in this theology, people first get saved, that is, they are justified and born again. Following this, they experience a period of growth in which they progressively become more holy in daily living. This ultimately culminates in a second work of grace whereby the Holy Spirit cleanses their heart of original sin, literally uh, eradicating all inbred sin, and then imparts His indwelling presence to them, empowering them to live the Christian life in perfection. We don't believe that. Uh, that's not taught in the Bible. 
Why, Paul says in, in Romans 7, why do I always do what I don't want to do? And I would, don't want to take any more time, but Sproul gives an excellent testimony of his early Christian life where he has a roommate that's a member of the holiness crowd. And um, he asked him, he was older, so Sproul said, well, what, what is the secret of you're always so joyful? And he said, this, this, you've got to have this second gift. So they prayed for it. They went to this guy's pastor. He laid hands on Sproul. He said, next day I woke up and I was still a sinner. <laughs> so anyway, that's sort of a... And with the second blessing, at least as far as I know, normally it is considered to be accompanied by the gift of tongues. Oh, I'm sorry. So that when, yes. when, the, when the Spirit... So you, you've already been a Christian maybe for six months or six years or... 35 years, and when you pray for the second blessing, the Spirit comes upon you, and you begin speaking in tongues. The tongue speaking would be evidence that, that you've gotten the second blessing. Now, again, we do not believe that this is even close to correct biblically, but that is a, that is a teaching that is maybe more popular than you would think uh, across Christendom widely in, in, the, in the world today. One more, one more fact, a fun fact about Pentecostalism. It uh, claims 644 million followers worldwide. Huge. Second only to Roman Catholicism as a, as a group. So it's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, we feel like there's um, several places in Acts that we can go to to get an idea. And that'd be a great place to start today. Acts 2. Mark, you want to help us here in Acts 2? Yeah, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. In... Uh, the, the gift of tongues, explicitly spoken of, the, in the, the New Testament gift of tongues is only mentioned in two books of the Bible, okay? It is only in Acts and 1 Corinthians. It is nowhere else to be found. So, Acts mentions tongues explicitly, and if, if you want to jot this down, you can just to have it in your head. It, Acts mentions uh, tongues in chapters 2, also chapters 10 and 11, which go together as one story. Remember Cornelius' conversion that goes on for a long time because they tell the story twice. So Acts 2, Acts 10 and 11, which is a single story, and Acts chapter 19. So outside of Acts 2, 10, 11, and 19, that's, the, that's it for tongues in the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians talks about tongues throughout chapters 12 to 14. So if you want to jot down 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that's the other place where the gift is talked about uh, in, in the most detail uh, in that part of Scripture. So in Acts chapter 2, what, what exactly is this gift? Well, among other things, it seems to be sort of indicating two connected ideas. Number one is the reversal of the, of the Tower of Babel. So at the Tower of Babel, that's the division of the languages. Where, where did different, you know, but tongues, don't, don't get confused with the word tongues. It sounds so strange. It just means languages. It's the gift of languages. It's just referring to, you know, today it would be Spanish and English and German and French and whatever it is, Swahili. Well, it's just a gift of languages. And so uh, at the Tower of Babel, everyone up until that point was speaking one unified language. And at the, at the Tower of Babel, just before, not long before Abraham, you have a division of the languages to keep them from completing the tower. And God does this as a judgment so that they could not be together really as this one unstoppable force against God, the, the, these people, the Babylonian tower builders. And so the division of the languages languages was a judgment to keep people from being united in their evil, right? Now they're divided in their evil, and divided, you're less strong. And so God, throughout all of human history, from Genesis 11, that's early, all the way till Acts chapter 2, people are all these different, there's this language divide all over the place. And when Jesus ascends to heaven after His death and resurrection, He sends His Spirit to do what? He is going to overcome the judgment of Babel in Himself, so that in the new heavens and new earth, you will hear people from every tribe and tongue 
and people and nations singing praises to the Lamb who was slain. And so Jesus takes the judgment of division and brings it back together to greater glory in himself. And this is a miniature picture of the glory of Christ because at this moment, the 120 disciples begin to speak in other languages of those around them from Cappadocia and Bithynia and all these different places, uh, including Rome. They're speaking all these different languages and all these little groups and people around are going, hey, that's my hometown language. That's what people speak back where I'm from. I mean, we all know Greek or Latin, but not everybody knows Bithynia. No, not everyone knows where I'm from. And you're, you're, you're a Galilean. You're speaking the gospel. You're speaking the works of God in my language. What is this? It's a remarkable sign of God reversing that judgment. And, and he's doing this also on an anniversary of, of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So the giving of the law, which led to 3,000 being slaughtered for sin on that time, now it's the giving of grace through Christ. It's, it's the giving of the, of the gospel. And what happens? Not 3,000 Israelites are slaughtered. 3,000 Israelites are converted on the day of Pentecost. And so you're seeing here uh, connections with the Old and New Testament. Good, Greg. Let's read Acts 2 real quick just to, so we can see this. Um, we'll begin in verse 1, Acts chapter 2. Uh, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is real languages that are being spoken, okay? Let, let, Greg, with that verse, it doesn't, doesn't say, this is important, people will sometimes say it's the gift of hearing. That one person spoke one thing, and everybody heard it in their own language. It's the gift of hearing, not the gift of speaking. But verse 4 will not allow that. Look at verse 4 one more time. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. It's not the gift of hearing. It's the gift of speaking. That's a big deal for how we interpret what this gift is. All right, let's keep reading. Um, just given the biblical foundation for what Mark was saying, verse uh, 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's a, that's a big group of people there. And look at what it says. Uh, we hear them telling in our own tongues, hometown tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Now, one of the things we're going to argue for um, is that tongues is a form of prophecy, a subset of prophecy. And we've already argued, I think, convincingly from Scripture that prophecy is infallible speech from God. Okay? This is going to be key to understanding what's going on here. And so in verse 14, we're not going to read all of that. Peter stands up. We'll read, the, read kind of his intro and then, you know, summarize but he says, uh, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he talks about how God's going to pour out his spirit on all um, and his sons and daughters, God's sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men see visions. 
um, and all of that. And then he goes on to preach about Jesus um, dying and rising from the dead. And then as you know, um, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter is speaking infallible speech from God in this first Christian sermon, this first gospel message, um, now that the Holy Spirit has come, um, and it is in languages that people understand. Okay, like that is the most important thing we can take away from this. It's not gibberish. It's not something that they hear a few similar things to what they know back home and they kind of piece it together. No, they're hearing them. Like if it were for me, it'd be South Georgia Baxley dialect with a Southern drawl. Okay. Like that's how clear it is to them and unmistakable the gift that God has given to hear the gospel in their own language. And it's important what Greg just said. I think this is true. Follow, follow this just for a second. So verses one through 13 the people are speaking in other known human languages. Does everybody see where we're getting that from, right? These people recognize these other human languages. Now, Peter is giving an account. He's giving an explanation from the Old Testament to defend and explain what's happening. Look again at verse, uh, verse. Um, I, I lost my spot, verse 16. So, so explaining tongues, verse 16, Peter says, but this, talking about the tongues, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, uh, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is clearly what's happening. And your sons and your daughters shall speak in tongues? Prophesy. And then he says, see visions, dream dreams. Look at verse 18. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour my, out my spirit and they shall speak in tongues? No, he calls it prophecy. T now listen, this is so important. The verse he quotes to explain tongues doesn't mention tongues. It mentions prophecy twice. Why? Because I believe, I think this is true biblically, tongues is a form of prophecy. Prophecy is normally speaking God's divine truth straight from heaven in the language you already know. Okay, that's, that's normally. So for them, it would be Aramaic. It might be Greek. They speak what they already know. Straight from heaven, they speak words of God in the language that they know. That's normal prophecy. But when prophecy happens and you prophesy in a language you don't know, that is called tongues, okay? So in both cases, where are the words originating from? They're coming from heaven. These are God's words. And if God is the one speaking, whether it's in a known language or a language you do not know, whether it's so normal prophecy or it's the rare kind of prophecy known as tongues, whichever kind of prophecy it is, who is the one speaking? It's the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking, can there be errors in what is said? No, which means tongues is infallible speech. If it is rightly interpreted, Right? If the listener knows German and this person is speaking German, articulating the gospel in German, they don't know German. They're speaking it perfectly. Say, I knew German. If I can hear what they're saying, I'm not listening to them talk. I'm listening to the Holy Spirit speak through them in another language. Therefore, tongues is also infallible speech. And if infallible speech is what it is, then just like prophecy, everyone agrees if it is infallible speech, what? It can't happen anymore today because that would threaten the finality and sufficiency of the Bible. So th that is, that's really the core of the whole argument today. And we're going to build off that. But that, that, if you get that core in there that he calls tongues prophecy in Acts 2, and we know prophecy is divine inerrant speech, so is tongues. Therefore, they both would have ceased uh, not long after the death of John the Apostle. You pointed this out, Mark, but uh, this second work of grace, you will, as evidence, you will speak in tongues. 100% of the people that receive this second work of grace will speak in tongues. That's the Pentecostal interpretation. Right. 
and, and it matters too because as if you want to go ahead and turn to First Corinthians uh, fourteen, uh, twelve and fourteen, we'll spend some time there. There is a there's a lot of pressure. Um, if if you've been around folks who are in the charismatic movement in uh, churches of God, assembly of God, Pentecostal churches, um, there there's a spectrum of of beliefs on this. Um, I encountered this when I was in high school, even before I really became a true believer. Um, you know, I was still involved with the church we were at, and you know, I was at a Baptist church. I had a lot of friends at a Methodist church, a lot of friends at the Church of God right down the road. Um, and there was a lot of pressure um, to to prove your Christianity by these supernatural gifts. Like, you know, our church is really spiritual because we have tongues and prophecy and all of this, and your church really doesn't have the spirit much if you're not doing these things. And so there's this 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 kind of mindset that I think they the Corinthians were in this, churches today fall in this, um, where they say, like, if you don't have this, then God's not really working in your church. Because if God's working in your church, then you're going to have tongues, and you're going to have prophecy, and you're going to have miracles, and you're going to have healings all the time. Um, now, not all folks who are Pentecostal will say that, okay? I've heard a number of Church of God pastors um, say, listen, my Baptist brothers are just as saved as I am. They, uh, they don't have to speak in tongues to prove they belong to God. It's not necessary. So um, not all Pentecostals will stress the, the necessity of tongues um, as some do. But it's still an issue um, because if it is something that is ongoing, we should seek it and pray for it. If it is, rightly as I think we're, we're looking at, infallible speech from God, it is something that has stopped. But there is an emotional component to this, guys, that we have to be willing to, to face. When you have had an experience, whether right or wrong, that has in some way radically impacted your life, it's hard to evaluate that objectively. It is incredibly hard to do that. Um, and anytime you get in a conversation with someone about this issue, if it's something they think they have experienced, they are going to have a hard time even seeing the scripture might say something different because they've experienced it. Okay? Um, if anything pushes us, and it's, it's not that we're arguing for a cold, heartless Christianity here. We're not saying that at all. But we have to evaluate every experience we have in light of the clear teaching of Scripture. And if our experience, no matter how impactful, no matter how life-changing and emotional it might have seemed, if it does not line up with what Scripture clearly teaches, we need to cast that experience to the side and say, regardless of what it was, it was not biblical, and I'm not going to affirm it as something good anymore. Um, as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 14, let's keep that in mind because I think it's going to be clear um, that tongues is no longer and a thing. Let me just jump in. I, I started to make you flip again, but just chapter 12. Let's look at chapter 12 just for a second of 1 Corinthians and look at the very end of that chapter because I don't think Paul could say this more clearly. Um, and now he's speaking at a time when these gifts were still happening. This is the 50s AD, right around the time, you know, that we are in Acts, almost the exact same time in Acts, uh, 50s AD, when the gifts were still operative. Look at verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now look, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What is the rhetorical answer to 
to all those questions. Do, are all apostles? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all prophesy? No. So even when the gifts were operative, the gift of prophecy in tongues, even when those were still happening in the 50s of the first century, even then, you did not have to have it to prove, prove that you're a Christian. It was not some necessary requirement for a second blessing or to go to a higher level of spirituality. Paul knows that even when the gifts were operative, not everyone is going to have the gift of tongues. Not everyone will prophesy in the church. Genuine believers in this time period would not always do those things. So that, that's also something to keep in mind uh, as we look through this. He's not expecting everybody to do this. All right, let's look at uh, chapter 14 um, again, because we spent some time in here looking at prophecy, but it, prophecy and tongues are interwoven, so we have to consider these um, together. Let's start in chapter 14, uh, verse 1, um, and kind of follow what Paul says here. And please interrupt if you've got comments along the way. He says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And I, I got to make a comment here because I think um, one, if you read chapter 13, which we don't have time to get into, um, you know, love is what binds everything together. Love is the motivation and love was not the motivation of the Corinthians. It was, you know, pride. It was self-flattery. It was self-exaltation, not love and considering the good of others. So already just in saying pursue love, he's telling them to pursue something that was not a part of what they were doing. Um, but he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Prophecy, um, when it's just clear speech from God, is nothing super fancy like, a, you know, performing a healing or speaking in a supernatural tongue. Um, it's, it's something that's more normal in terms of, hey, God's giving them a word. We need to listen to what they say. It's not as flashy. It's not as spectacular. Um, and we have to be careful. The Corinthians fell into this, and we're just prone this way as humans to be drawn to the spectacular. Um, and the spectacular is not always true. So Paul is bringing them back. So verse two, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. And again, the contrast, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Stop there. <clears throat> One of the main reasons God gives, probably the chief reason, spiritual gifts is for the good of others. Not for our own selves so that we can puff ourselves up and, and draw attention to ourselves and think about how great we are because of what God's enabling us to do. No, God gives spiritual gifts in the church for the benefit of others. Uh, so however it is, God has gifted you personally. It's not just for you, it's for everyone around you. Um, whether it's teaching, administration, whether it's service, whatever it may be, God has gifted each one of us for the good of others. Paul comes back to that with this issue of tongues repeatedly. It's about what's going to build up the church. Uh, what's going to build up the church? Comment. Yeah, okay, so there, there's a whole hornet's nest of issues already in this passage. So real quick, number one, Probably one of the most popular opinions about tongues today amongst even people that we would generally respect, like Grudem, a lot of these people will say, the tongues in Acts is clearly human languages. There's no getting around it. Acts 2 couldn't be more clear, okay? And just, just to footnote this, we won't have time to go there. Acts 2, they're speaking in languages. That's very clear. In Acts 10 and 11, Cornelius, remember the Roman centurion, he and his family are converted. They speak in tongues. And in chapter 11, Peter says, they, look, they received the Spirit just as we did at the beginning, Acts 2. In other words, their tongue speaking is the same as Acts 2, just like we did at the beginning. So it had to be foreign human languages. And in Acts 19, 
the author Luke uses the same word for tongues, glosa or glosolalia, this word for your tongue, your language. He uses the same word in Acts 19 to describe the 12 Ephesian apostles Paul laid his hands on, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now, Luke is no doubt being a consistent author. The first two accounts of tongues has to be human languages. So the third account would also therefore be human languages. Do you see? I think that's pretty strong, okay? The three examples in Acts are human languages. Then people will argue, but the, the, the way tongues is spoken of in 1 Corinthians is so different than Acts that it's got to be a different gift. It's called tongues, same word, but it's got to be something different. It can't just be human languages. It's got to either be ecstatic speech, which is not really capable of clear language, or it could be angelic languages. Like 1 Corinthians 13, what if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So how do we not know that heavenly languages or ecstatic speech is involved here? How do we know it's the same gift of tongues? Let, let me handle that just real quick. Flip backwards. I know we're flipping, but flip to 13.1, and I want to give you a quick argument why I think angelic tongues is unlikely to have been something that happened in the early church. Verse 1, and you just weigh what I'm saying with Scripture. Don't take my word for it. 13.1, if I speak in the languages or tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now stop. Someone could say, Mark, it couldn't be more clear. Speaking in human tongues and angelic tongues is clearly what was happening, because why else would he say this if it didn't happen? And I want to say, okay, I grant why you would think that, but let me tell you why I don't think angelic tongues likely happened. The very next verse, verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, just follow the, the, the reasoning here. Ready? Paul keeps moving from something he does have to something he couldn't have. And he says, listen, what I do have, look, even if it's what I couldn't even have, if I even had that, if I don't have love, it's still pointless. He's using hyperbole intentionally exaggerated rhetorical speech. Let me prove it. Let me try to prove it. I, hope it. I hope this makes sense. He says, okay, if I speak in the tongues of men, is that something people did at the time? Yes. And of angels. I'm going to argue that's not something people did, but even if you could speak in angelic languages, whatever that would mean, if it's without love, it's pointless. Then the next example, if I have prophetic powers, did Paul have the gift of prophecy? Yes. Did he understand all mysteries and all knowledge? No, that would make him God. That would make him omniscient right? So Paul starts with a gift he has, prophetic speech, prophetic powers. Then he moves to something he couldn't have if he wanted it, which is omniscience. And Paul says, even if I was omniscient, if I did not have love, it would profit me nothing. And then he gives you another example. If I have the gift of faith, Paul clearly had the gift of faith to do miracles, so as to move mountains. Did Paul ever literally move a mountain with his faith? No. Paul keeps moving from a gift he actually has to a gift he couldn't have, but even if he had it and he didn't have love, it would be pointless. Do you see the way he's arguing? He's arguing from the real to the hypothetical. He's arguing from the real to the hyperbolic, to the exaggerated, to what's not even possible. And I think he's doing the same thing with angelic languages. Listen, if we speak in the gifts of men, that's one thing. Even if you could speak in so-called angelic languages, if you didn't have love, it would not help anybody at all. I think he's using hyperbole. I don't think he's talking about something that really happened. I think, he's, I think the only tongues that we see in the New Testament would be human languages. I want to make a passing comment on that. Um, again, know your Bibles well. And um, I'm not trying to be snarky when I say this, but anytime angels appear in the Bible, they only speak in intelligible speech. Hmm. They, they always speak in a way that is intelligible by people who, who hear them. So I don't think angels have some gibberish language anyway. And I think 
even if they, because again, I think it shows the absurdity of how they were thinking in Corinth. Um, so even if you were to speak in the tongue of an angel, you might not know you're doing it because angels always spoke in intelligent speech. Um, sorry. That's great. Insert there. And, and real quick, go back to chapter 14, verse 2. People will say 14.2 has to be a gift different than the gift of human languages. Because look at 14.2. For one who speaks in a tongue, in a language, speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And let, let me just say here, doesn't that sound different from Pentecost? In Pentecost, they spoke in a tongue, and people did understand them. Here he says, you speak in a tongue, no one understands you, only God. How could that be the same gift? And my answer is, it's not the gift that has changed, it is the context that has changed. The setting has changed. That explains the difference of detail. In Pentecost, were there people from all those nations? If you spoke the Pontus language or the Bithynian language or whatever, would someone there understand you? Yes, but the Corinthian context is not at a feast with tens of thousands of people from different nations who know many languages. He's talking about a church, one church in Corinth. How many languages would be known in one church with one group of members? How many languages are known in this room? Maybe a handful, maybe six, seven languages are known in this room, maybe not even that many. So if I start speaking whatever, a certain language, none of us may know what's happening. He's referring to the gift of languages, I believe, in the Corinthian church, which maybe they know three languages there, maybe four. So if you're speaking an obscure human language, how many people will know what you're saying? Nobody. It's different from Pentecost. And so in that sense, you're only really speaking to God. He's the only one who knows what you're actually, what you're saying. So I don't think that the detailed difference here means it's a different gift. I think it's, it means it's the same gift in a different context. Not a festival with thousands of people, a single local church with the same members who gather week after week. Look at verse 5. Um, again, thinking of Paul speaking in exaggerated language, Paul is known to do stuff like this, uh, what he says in verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Uh, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Um, I think Paul is, again, he's he's. He's using an extreme type of language to drive the point home. Yeah, it'd be great if you all spoke in tongues, but I'd rather you speak intelligible speech um, because it's, it's possible that at, at the very least, tongues, if it were happening in Corinth, was very actually limited in terms of who actually had the gift. Um, but the point is, even then, speaking clearly, intelligible speech, prophecy is what we need to seek. Because look at verse 6. Let's just keep walking through this. He says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And again, he's getting to the, the importance of actual interpretation um, when there's tongues. Um, he says, If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church." And again, well, let's read verse 13 and then I'll stop. He says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. And the whole point is, if the gift of tongues is going to be used, there's got to be an actual interpretation so you know what's being said. 
Um, and the Corinthians were not doing a good job at this. Maybe they weren't, it wasn't happening at all. Maybe it was, you know, legitimately happening only a little. Um, but the whole point of what Paul is saying is, you know, you guys are not speaking in ways where people understand what you're saying. And that goes against the whole purpose of the spiritual gifts as God has given them. Looking back real quick at verse 5. Let me read it one more time. It's a big, big verse. Verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. It's kind of like in chapter 7. I wish you all were single, remember? I mean, Paul, take that with a grain of salt, what he means by that, right? I wish you all were single, but I know you all have the gift, of, many of you have the gift of marriage, similarly here, perhaps. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Now, just pause here. That seems to go against what I just said. Because I said, tongues is a what? A form of prophecy. Here, Paul says prophecy is greater than tongues. Well, I just argued prophecy is the umbrella under which tongues is under it. So if tongues is a form of prophecy, how could Paul say prophecy is better than tongues? Well, read the whole verse carefully. One more time, verse five. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Do you see what Paul just said? He's talking about uninterpreted tongues. Uninterpreted tongues in a normal church context is going to help how many people? Zero. If I start speaking fluent Swahili right now and I, I preach the gospel perfectly in Swahili, it's benefiting maybe no one in the room, right? Maybe nobody. So I'm just, I'm showing off that I have the gift to speak Swahili very fluently and I might be speaking infallibly from the Spirit, but none of you know what I'm saying. I don't even know what I'm saying. How is that edifying? How is that helping? It's not building up the church. So Paul says, listen, prophecy is greater than uninterpreted tongues, but it's not greater than interpreted tongues. Because he says, if you interpret it, he puts it on the same level as prophecy. Prophecy is greater than tongues unless you interpret, unless, which means interpreted tongues is equal in value to prophecy. Why? Because it's, it is a form of prophecy. Once it's interpreted, it takes on the same value as prophecy because it's the same kind of gift. It's just in another language that has been interpreted. I think the important um, matter here is, is, is orderly worship. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at uh, 14, um, 26. Uh, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one have a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, or a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up, again, the body. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Okay? He puts guardrails around the use of tongues. Then he says, but if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three, here we go for prophecy. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another uh, sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I think there was confusion in the uh, Corinthian church. And Paul was putting these guardrails, these parameters around these gifts for the orderly worship. If I may interject something here in light of what you uh, were just saying and reading from, from Scripture here, um, in a lot of, of charismatic circles, um, and I, I say this from firsthand experience um, in high school and in college, I had a good number of friends who were at the Wesley Foundation at Georgia, and Wesley Foundation is just known for having some controversial stuff happen in terms of spiritual gifts, prophecy, and stuff like that. Um, and so a lot of firsthand experience with this, and one of the things that I think was going on in the Corinthian church and also we see in charismatic churches today is they say when the Spirit takes over, 
they're not in control of what's happening. Slain you, in the spirit language. Slain in that you're, you know, the spirit makes me fall on the ground and shake. I start speaking in this language. That's not me. That's the spirit. I have no control over that. When the spirit does that, if I prophesy, it's the spirit. I have no control. What Paul is saying is you have absolute control over what's happening. The spirits of prophets are subject, subject to prophets. They can control yes. when they talk and when they don't talk. Yes, exactly. And so that's another thing, at least about the modern charismatic movement that is so troubling to me, mm -hmm. is that the consistent refrain is, the spirit took over. I was out of my mind, and the spirit did what he was going to do, and I had no say, no control, no input whatsoever. Drunk in the spirit. Drunk, yeah, all of that. It goes completely contrary to what Paul says here, that whatever the Spirit is doing, you're sober and you're conscious and you're the one doing it too. It's not as if the Spirit does it apart from your will and apart from your mind. That is not at all what Paul is saying. Whatever spiritual gifts you have, you choose willingly, consciously to, to use it for the good of the church. On, on that note, Ephesians 5, I think verse 18 says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Oftentimes in more... Pentecostal environments, they will use that verse to say, don't be drunk with wine, be drunk with the Spirit. That's not the contrast that Paul's making. It's exactly the opposite of the meaning of that verse. That verse doesn't say, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, because it leads you to this kind of crazy spiritual state. No, no, no. It's the opposite of being drunk. This, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Drunkenness, the fruit of drunkenness is debauchery, lack of self-control. He says, listen, don't lose your mind under alcohol maintain your right mind by the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a contrast, not a similarity between drunkenness and the Spirit, which I think is important. And that underscores how many times in the New Testament does it say, be sober-minded? Mm -hmm. God's concern is that we're in our right minds, never out of our right minds. And so any, any view of how God works that takes us out of our ability to think coherently and clearly, that is not God. God, when the Spirit is at work, we are more like clear-minded. I mean, and you guys can probably testify. Mm -hmm. I know there's been times when I've shared the gospel with people or I've been preaching. It's like I get a clarity that I don't normally have mm -hmm. to say things in a way I normally couldn't say them. And when I try to relate that, I couldn't get it half as clear as I did in the midst of that conversation. So the, when the Spirit, when we're filled with the Spirit, we actually get more sober. Our words get more clear. Our minds get sharper and we're able to hone in on things in a way we normally would not be able to. Yeah, and, and real quick with that verse Fred read, when, when there's speaking in tongues, if it were happening today, let's say the gifts still happen today, the restrictions are not followed by most churches that claim to practice these gifts because what does it say? Let no more than three speak in tongues in a church service. How many churches that do this follow that rule? Number two, it says, don't speak simultaneously, take turns, right? Then every time a tongue speaker speaks, it must be interpreted, interpreted. to edify the body. Uninterpreted tongues are, listen, never allowed in Paul's Corinthian church. So even if the gifts still happen today, I've seen TV preachers in the middle of a sentence, Creflo Dollar throws out, shakadabakadabakadab, he just goes back to his sermon. He just does his tongue in the middle of his sermon. Now, what he just did was, if that were real, which of course it's not real, uh, but if that were real, he did not interpret the tongue, which is a sin. He would be sinning in the middle of that sermon because he spoke in a so-called tongue, which I think was not a tongue, but he said something in another language and went back to speaking. Of course, it wasn't another language, but he's claimed that one. No one interpreted it, and there's never a cap on how many people can do it. That's the whole point of this chapter is saying never more than three every time interpreted. Never more than three every time interpreted. That would get rid of virtually all tongue speaking today because virtually all tongue speaking today is not in a human language and is uninterpretable. Okay, you, you can't interpret what is, not a, what is not a language. And so uh, just following these rules would get rid of the, virtually all of what claims to be modern-day tongue-speaking in a church service.
I think real quick before we finish, we need to address the issue of what private tongues or like private prayer language. You might have heard that before as well. Well, you know, I'm, I might not do it in the service, but or you know, uh, but God's given me this this private prayer language, and so when when I pray, I'm praying in a private prayer language, um, you know, in the church. And again, if what we're saying is right, and I think it is. Um, the only type of tongues that are allowed in, in a congregation, at least in the first century, would have been um, interpreted tongues. And private prayer language is by nature uninterpreted. Um, and I, again, I've seen so many people, they're in their service um, and they're raising their hands. They got a smile on their face. It's like they're filled with joy and it's just na, 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 na. And that's it for like 10, 10 minutes. And that's all they're doing. Um, again, that kind of stuff is not allowed if we understand how Paul is using tongues in 1 Corinthians. The, the danger here, as Greg's pointing out, is, is bypassing the mind, becoming the normal way of doing the Christian life. So that you go, you're led by what you think is emotion from the Holy Spirit, and you just feel like doing things. So you're, you fall on the ground, you're, 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 you're moving around in a certain kind of way. It looks like you're having like, like, like a Holy Spirit seizure, they'll call it. I had a friend of mine who went to a very charismatic university out in, uh, in Oklahoma, and uh, he, he said there, it was, it was uh, Oral Roberts University, but they had, they had a, a service on a Thursday night or something, a chapel service, and it was laughter night in the Holy Spirit. This is my, this is my friend, is, I, don't think he's, I don't think this was exaggerated. My friend, first of all, well, we won't get into that, but he went to the college and he said, I got to tell you, because he, he was charismatic, but he's like, Mark, this was crazy. Like, I'm charismatic. I, I was, this is not right. This guy gets up there on the stage with his microphone and he just starts bursting out laughing. And it's like 900 kids or whatever, I don't know, a huge room of students. They start laughing. It's like waves of laughter. And every, it just goes on for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. It's laughter in the Holy Spirit night. We're expressing the joy of the Lord. Isn't the fruit of the Spirit joy? Well, this, this is, there's no intellectual content. Where is the doctrine of what Christ has done moving you to tears and creating joy? Where's the doctrine of God creating emotion that is fitting for the doctrine of God? G give me preaching of substance and then show me some, some strong emotion. I'm all for emotion, but the emotion needs to be based on biblical content, not on emptying your head and just kind of flopping around on the floor, whatever it may be that you'll see in different experiences. It's not led by emotion. It is led by the mind, informed by Scripture, and then engaging the affections. We are all for the affections being stirred. I, I believe as strongly as anybody in the affections. I believe Piper's whole thing on desiring God and being satisfied in God is a good way to think, but it comes through the mind. God works by his spirit through the mind, through doctrine, into the affections, transforms the desires, and then works out from that. And, and anything that wants to minimize doctrine and, and increase experience, you're playing an unbiblical and dangerous game. And before you know it, you'll be led into very strange behavior. Think about it. You're led by not clear doctrine like these restrictions, these guardrails. You take off the guardrails. No more than three. Always interpret. You get rid of the guardrails and you just kind of do what you feel like. You're going to have a very strange looking service. And if I can, I know we're almost out of time, but let me just read this last part. It's a little confusing. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. See? Don't be children in your thinking. But be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, quotes Isaiah 28, by people of strange tongues, that's the Assyrians, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, I'm going to add the words, of judgment, a sign of judgment, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, I would argue, of blessing, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, this is simultaneous, uninterpreted, mass tongue speaking, okay? It's chaos. If, if therefore the whole church comes together, verse 23, and all speak in tongues, uninterpreted, and outsiders, 
or unbelievers enter, will they not say what? That you are out of your minds. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let me try. This is a very challenging paragraph. Try real quick as we close here on this. Here's what I think Paul's saying. In the Old Testament in Isaiah, when the Israelites heard the uninterpreted Assyrian tongues outside the wall, you know what that meant? They're about to be destroyed by the Assyrians as God's judgment. So uninterpreted tongues in Isaiah was a sign of what? Imminent judgment on the people of God, right? It was a sign of imminent judgment on the unbelieving people in the pe within Israel. Okay, Paul sees an analogy between that text and what was happening in Corinth. Okay, it's, it's not identical, it's analogous. In the Corinthian church, when you guys are all, you know, speaking incoherently in uninterpreted tongues, when you invite your unbelieving friend, they come in and they're like, what was that? That was crazy. And they leave in disgust and they don't stick around to hear the gospel. And so guess what? Uninterpreted tongues leads to their judgment just like it did for Israel in the Old Testament. You get it? Uninterpreted Assyrians outside the wall means God's going to judge me. In the church in Corinth, uninterpreted tongues in the church means an unbeliever comes in, they leave disgusted, they don't stick around to hear about Jesus in their own language. That means they're not gonna hear about salvation, which means what? They're facing imminent judgment. So uninterpreted tongues is actually a sign of judgment against the unbeliever. If you do it, you're actually increasing the chances that unbelievers in the room will perish in their sin because they won't stick around to hear the gospel. They don't know what you're saying. They think that you guys are drunk or something's wrong with you and they, they get out of there. And so speak intelligibly to build up the believer but also speak intelligibly to not alienate the lost. The, the gospel would be clear. We're about clarity, not obscurity. We, we want our words to be clear, not ambiguous. We want to be absolutely unmistakable in what we mean, that there is a holy God who will save us through Christ. And when we make that message clear in the language that is known, the common language of the, of the area, the unbeliever who's there can understand the message. The secrets, the sins of their heart are revealed. They fall on their face. They say, God, the real God must be among you guys. I'm getting saved right now. So interpreted clear speech is the goal for edification of the church and evangelization of the lost. It's great. Papa, could you pray for us? Father God, um, uh, as I listen to Mark and, and my other brothers on the panel, I'm, uh, I'm uh, awed by the Apostle Paul's guidelines in um, 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 12 through 14, um, his desire to uh, explain the spiritual gifts, but also to put uh, parameters around their use uh, that uh, for the good of the body, for the good of the order, and that uh, caution against misuse and abuse of those same gifts. Um, Father, this is, this is sage um, um, re revelation, especially in, in, in evaluating the, the, the rise of, of wholesale Pentecostalism worldwide. Father, I pray that we would um, speak the truth in love when we encounter something like that and use the wisdom of, of Scripture and the wisdom of the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit to help us in, in, in explaining this and teaching others. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.